welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. This week, we've got a really unusual combination of subject and biographer, an internationally best-selling thriller writer seen through the eyes of a literary academic. British thriller writer Lee Child sells one of his Jack Reacher books every few seconds somewhere around the world. He's a publishing phenomenon for many reasons, including recently handing over the Reacher mantle to his younger brother Andrew. Reacher is a man of few words, tall, lean, terse, elusive, aloof, and like the classic hero in a Western, he rides into town, identifies and solves a conflict using a combination of smarts and violence, has a brief, uncomplicated physical encounter with a woman, and then leaves again, having meted out his own form of justice. Lee Child resembles his hero physically and psychologically, but without the violence. He was born Jim Grant in Britain's industrial heartland and was an unhappy child who felt unloved, particularly by his mother. As well as that wound, he nursed a real sense of grievance about being sacked from a job he loved at Granada Television. In her biography, The Reacher Guy, Heather Martin shows how Jim Grant turned into Lee Child and poured his deepest sense of being wronged into Reacher's need to settle scores. But she goes much further than that, comparing Lee Child to two giants of literature, José Luis Borges and Albert Camus. As you'll hear from this, the opening of his first book in the Reacher series, The Killing Floor, the clipped style of prose certainly owes a debt to Hemingway. I was arrested in Eno's diner at 12 o'clock. I was eating eggs and drinking coffee. A late breakfast, not lunch. I was wet and tired after a long walk and heavy rain, all the way from the highway to the edge of town. The diner was small, but bright and clean. Brand new, built to resemble a converted railroad car. Narrow, with a long lunch counter on one side and a kitchen bumped out back. Booths lining the opposite wall. A doorway where the center booth would be. I was in a booth, at a window, reading somebody's abandoned newspaper about the campaign for a president I didn't vote for last time and wasn't going to vote for this time. Outside, the rain had stopped, but the glass was still pebbled with bright drops. I saw the police cruisers pull into the gravel lot. They were moving fast and crunched to a stop. Light bars flashing and popping. Red and blue light and the raindrops on my window. Doors burst open. Policemen jumped out. Two from each car. Weapons ready. Two revolvers, two shotguns. This was heavy stuff. One revolver and one shotgun ran to the back. One of each rushed the door. I just sat and watched them. I knew who was in the diner. A cook in back, two waitresses, two old men, and me. This operation was for me. Heather Martin, welcome to Life Sentences. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I want to know what made you want to write this biography? (laughs) Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, uh, The thing I'm very conscious of is that I would never have had the idea of writing this biography at all had I not met Lee Child. Um, Before I met the man himself, uh, the name Lee Child basically meant very little to me. I mean, it was the name Jack Reacher, (laughs) that meant something. I mean, I I was a reader of the books, like so many people, and uh, I enjoyed the book. So I guess you could say that all the name Lee Child meant to me in those days was uh, the guarantee of a good read. So, you know, the books came first. Uh, But then I just, I happened to meet the man socially. I didn't go to an event. It wasn't a, it wasn't a sort of professional, um, I I hadn't sought him out as a fan. I hadn't gone to a book signing or something like that. I just met him socially in New York and we started to talk. And, you know, it doesn't take long talking to Lee, um, as I I know you've met him yourself. Uh, It doesn't take long before you realise that he's at least as interesting, more interesting, twice as interesting as his character. I mean, I guess kind of obviously he contains that character, but he also exceeds or, you know, transcends the character as well. So, And he's a, he's a kind of just a complex, fascinating man. 
um, with a great turn of phrase and it sort of developed from there basically but yeah so it was it was meeting the man himself that made me want to write the biography I and mean, you could argue that as a publishing phenomenon that should have been sufficient you know he is a publishing phenomenon he's an institution these days and that is almost sufficient to justify a biography in itself but it was um you know how he'd become that writer that interested me most but I'm interested in that because you come from an academic background and he is a genre writer. You can't have been the first person to try and write a biography of him. I'm sure lots of other people had asked him, what was it about you and the way you approached him that made him think, yeah, I think I'm going to trust her? Yeah, well, I... Um actually take credit for the idea. I'm not sure that anyone else had proposed it. (laughs) And I think it was a stroke of genius on my part. I mean, when I did meet him, I sort of, I realised that people, whilst fascinated by Reacher, were increasingly interested in him. I mean, I saw the people then queuing around the blocks to, you know, get a chance to shake his hand or, you know, exchange two words with him. So it struck me that there was um, a, a demand there or likely to be a demand there. But no, he was a reluctant subject. He wasn't interested in having a biography and you know it might be interesting to talk a little bit about why it's not an autobiography what's not a memoir because so many writers do produce those especially these days but um we we just started talking we had conversations about his books in particular and books and writing in general and we kind of carried on that conversation in correspondence so we became friends essentially and he knew about my academic background and he's very respectful of academics. Um, he knew that I was a linguist and, a, a, and that I specialised in Spanish literature, modern Spanish literature. And one day he just, out of the blue, sent me one of his books in Spanish translation and said, um, you know, tell me if it's any good. A typical laconic style. That's pretty much all he said, tell me if it's any good. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity, you know. I mean, either I'm just going to say, oh, it's wonderful, yes, you know, it's absolutely marvellous, or I'm going to tell him what I really think, which actually I didn't think it was that great. And, and, and I thought, well, it's not enough to do that. Again, my academic experience tells me it's not enough to say that. You have to be able to say why. So I sent him quite an analytical breakdown of the first few chapters, which was, you know, in a way quite a bold move, I I think, retrospectively, and just said, well, you know, they've messed with your syntax and they didn't really need to. I mean, I think with Lee Child, his voice is the thing. That's what defines him as a writer. The character, yes, but essentially the voice. And... Spanish is a very, very flexible and adaptive language and it didn't need to betray the English to the extent that it had. It had basically corrected his English. So where he chooses to drop the subject of the verb, it had put it back in. Where he'd chosen to do fragmentary sentences or, you know, strictly speaking, not sentences at all, they'd joined them. And But it was very odd because they'd made short sentences longer and longer sentences shorter. And I just said, that's all unnecessary. And it doesn't sound like you. And it didn't sound like him. And I think he was very struck by that. He was struck by, he was interested to find out about um, how his book sounded in Spanish, but he was also, I think, struck by the fact that I dared to say it and explain it. And later, when the biography came out, much, much later, uh, he, he did say in an interview that we did together that that was the beginning of trust for him because he felt that he... Because you, you use that word trust, it's a lovely word, and he said literally that that was the beginning of trust for him because he, he realised then that um, I... Well, I'm, I'm quoting him here. So <laughs> that I knew what mattered. I knew what was important. And, that, and again, to use one of his phrases, that I got it in some way. So, you know, he felt that he could tr- you know, trust me with that job. Well, and I think what you demonstrated there was a kind of care for that voice and a respect mm. and a regard for that voice, which is almost protective. And then you go much, much further in the book. You t- in terms of flattery, you pay him the most extravagant, <laughs> some people could say, uh, compliment by comparing him to one of Spain's greatest writers, Borges. Oh, well, you know, again, I think you asked about my own background. And obviously, every reader brings their own reading to whatever they're doing, whatever book they're reading, whatever book they're writing. 
And Bord has this big part of my background. I lectured on him for years. And he's an inescapable influence for me. And I think in a way, although that seems sort of outrageous, although no more outrageous than when, you know, Lee himself compares himself to sort of Proust or something. Uh, it isn't really, because I, I remember Borges, he had a, a calling card, and it just said, Jorge Luis Borges, contemporáneo, contemporary, you know, man of the 20th century. And he basically lived pretty much for the entire 20th century. I actually had the great good fortune to meet him when he was um, in his... 80s, uh, when I was still at Cambridge. So he's just an inescapable influence. And in a way, they have much more in common than, than people realise. And, and that, that impression that I've had, you know, fleetingly at times, um, is just reinforced every time I reconsider that question. Partly in character, you know, another guy with a phenomenal memory, another guy with a phenomenal interest in, in, in language in general, loves... Uh, to recover words that uh, are not so commonly used. Uh, loves etymology, is fascinated by etymology. Another guy with a big picture view. I mean, the obvious difference, of course, is that Lee writes rather long books <laughs> and Borges wrote very compact stories. But I think Lee has a similar ability. And you see this much more in his non-fiction writing. I'm a big admirer of his non-fiction writing. When he writes an essay or an introduction to a book, he's got this incredible sort of Borgesian ability to paint a big picture very, very quickly, but without sacrificing detail, that sense of detail that, that grounds it and that gives authenticity. And, and I just, yeah, so I, I do see lots of um, points of comparison. But I, I would say that's inevitable just because Borges is, you know, all of literature is contained in Borges. Another thing, their shared love of Shakespeare they shared fascination with Shakespeare. I mean, the last story Borges wrote was Shakespeare's memory, uh, where he is given Shakespeare's memory by a man he meets in a pub. Uh, and I sometimes think that, you know, when I reread it the other day, I thought, yes, a bit of that in Lee, you know, he's somehow absorbed that character, you know, a man of Warwickshire, and he's read those plays so many times, and he can quote the language um, you know, he he tell you stories about Shakespeare, and so yeah. <laughs> wow, he's really on a roll here, Heather. We've got Shakespeare <laughs> and we've got Borges, and we've been talking for about ten minutes. Let's just come back to Earth uh, and talk about process, about that sort of pedestrian thing of access, how helpful he was, how much you were allowed mm. to tag along. Was there anything where he said to you, no? I don't want you to go there because I get the sense of quite a sort of clean, linear life in terms of his career. I mean, lots of things about his career that are unusual, say, um, for the background of a writer, but that there isn't a lot of mess that you actually had to disentangle. No, and, and I think that's actually fairly true to life. I don't think there is a lot of mess. I mean, we all have a certain amount of mess, but I would say he has the normal amount of mess. So therefore, not uh, something that you need to particularly dwell on. Um, he was incredibly permissive as a subject. He never tried to control uh, my opinions, my judgments, the comparisons that I made, the context in which I put him, the way I presented him. Um, he was really on, only interested in correcting matters of fact when he read it and matters of astonishingly trivial fact, which I found fascinating. Uh, and I can give you an example of that. There was one little anecdote where he was putting up a shelf in a, a, a house that he and his wife had recently acquired when they were first married and he'd knocked a hole in the wall. And, and the reason he told me this was to illustrate how, you know, what a, what a sort of modest dwelling it was. It was the then and now story, you know. Uh, and I accidentally transferred that anecdote to an adjacent house. You know, I think I, I had it in the first house they bought, where it was actually the first place they lived in as students. Uh, you know, a difference that makes no material difference to the reader doesn't really undermine anything, changes nothing. He corrected that. I found that fascinating. But it also, in a way, struck me, therefore, that from his point of view, the other details must have been pretty spot on or he would have been correcting those as well, you know, because he corrected a handful of things. As for telling me there were things I couldn't talk about, almost nothing. Well, I would say, I have to be honest, pretty much nothing. But we had a good understanding. We had a good rapport. 
And I always intended this to be a literary biography, uh, a sort of portrait of the artist as a young man, if you like, not a celeb biography. If anyone else had proposed a biography, it probably would have erred more on that side. You know, who's this celebrity? Who's this phenomenon? And I think um, the things that he wouldn't have wanted me to write too much about were things that I was already treating with discretion. I mean, and it has to do with the fact that I'm writing a biography of a living author. So, you know, that that raised interesting questions about where to stop, you know, the end of Mm. the biography. But Mm. also just I was very conscious of the fact that he has a living family. (laughs) And, uh, And sometimes I would he would tell me something because he was very confiding, very forthcoming, in fact. Um, But sometimes he would tell me something and I I would even write it into a chapter or write it in my notes. And then later I found myself thinking, "Mm, how would I feel if that was me, that detail? And there was one point where, you know, really quite late in the process, about the second draft, it was already in proof form. And I said to him, "Mm, How's that particular member of your family going to read? I said it. How are they going to feel when they read that? And he said, probably not great. So I I decided to take it out. So there was kind of self-censorship going on. Um, But he gave me incredible freedom. I think the thing is, he he, he didn't want to write an autobiography. He quite liked the idea of a biography once he came round to it. (laughs) But he didn't want to do the autobiography because he likes that idea of there being a distance. Um, I think you've described him as aloof. And uh, he's, he's a big observer. So when you're talking to him, he's listening more than he's talking. He's observing you. He's assessing you. He's kind of judging you. And I guess he was doing that to me the whole time. And he's t- kind of taking mental notes and storing you up for future reference, I suppose. Writers do that. And he does it a bit by nature anyway. Um, but he likes the idea of there being distance between the author and the book. For him, the book is what matters. The book's what's out there on the shelf in the shops. And it's what the book is what the reader takes home. Well, and in a sense, Jack Reacher has a kind of detached forensic view of the world as if he's looking on his own life and the episodes that unfold in a narrative from a sort of distance, from a kind of a height sometimes. Absolutely right. And that is very much Lee's perspective in a way I suppose because he's so tall yeah he's tall and he's an observer and he's a little bit of a essentially a loner by nature I mean obviously his success has put him center stage and he's performed very well he's a good performer Uh, he's done a good job he takes his job very seriously he respects his readers enormously but by nature he's a loner and by nature he's always felt like an outsider and that goes right back to you know his earliest childhood he felt like an outsider in his own family then again when he went to school so um he he's I, i called it the reacher guy for kind of fairly obvious reasons not least because he tends to describe himself that way at events but i could have just as easily and just as truthfully, if you like, called it the backstage guy. Because, you know, he worked backstage in the theatre before he went into television. And that's really the way he sees himself. You know, he sees himself as the the sort of the guy behind the the scenes, making Reacher do his thing. And and Reacher is essentially just an enhanced version of him. Um, He would always say that jokingly at events. But the more he told me about his life and the better I got to know him. And when I went back to reread the books, which inevitably I did, I had to do some of them many times, um, I just realised how the two things were so closely entangled. You know, well, he and Reacher were sort of versions of each other, increasingly so as the years went by. But Reacher had always been there in some shadowy form, you know, from when he was a little boy. Well, in a sense, you're writing a biography which takes in three facets, perhaps, of one individual. So we have Jim Grant. That's the kind of original material that we're working with here. Jim Grant, who comes from Coventry. And then Jim Grant becomes Lee Child, and increasingly Lee Child becomes Mm -hmm. Jack Reacher. So you're kind of juggling that extraordinary synthesis 
And that's probably one of the things that made it particularly interesting to me because I felt like I was writing, if you like, the biography of three people. As I said, Jack Reacher I met first. Then I met Lee Child. And Lee Child's the man I know. I got to know him as Lee. I still write to him as Lee. I think of him as Lee. Many people do. But in the course of the biography, and the guy I didn't know anything about was Jim Grant. I had to get to know Jim Grant. And the way I got to know Jim Grant was not through Lee, because Lee was just being Lee, you know. Uh, I had to go and meet his his old friends, his old colleagues, his school friends. I had to get to know Jim Grant through people who found it awkward to use the name Lee Child. <laughs> and, and so eventually I became acquainted with Jim Grant. And, and then increasingly, as I sort of would just be with him in New York tracking him a little bit you know there'd be times when I'd see him on the same day within the same hour sign his name as Lee Child um, in one place and Jim Grant in another I mean I think for a shy person which essentially is what he is despite being a great performer I think having an avatar having an alter ego was great was perfect for him because he could do Lee Child and he could do it brilliantly. No one does it better. Um, but, he could go, but he could go on being Jim Grant, you know, quite happily uh, behind the scenes. And really no one knew about Jim Grant. And I tell you, one of the most fascinating moments to me was I was interviewing one of his old colleagues from Granada Television in Manchester. And um, she got out some photographs to show me. And one of the photographs was of a trip that she and her partner had taken with um, Jim and Jane Grant. Um, they'd taken a, a, a trip, a cruise, and it was to celebrate the Grants' wedding anniversary. And they were old friends, and it was a treat from the Grants to this, you know, to these old friends. They'd all gone together. Lovely photographs for them all in evening dress, including Lee Child in his, you know, DJ. You don't usually see him like that. I was fascinated by that. But what fascinated me particularly was that that was not early in his career. That was quite late in his career. He was, it was in, it was definitely, it was around 2012 or something like that. He, he was full into Lee Child mode by then, but still quietly behind the scenes. He was doing Jim Grant things with his family and his old friends. And that for me was a real eye opener. I wanted to ask you, since you've mentioned Jane, I mean, one of the things that makes this less messy than other people's lives is that his life partner, his wife, whom he married young, is still there in the picture. You know, we're not talking about a serial um, husband. No. We're talking about someone who's had one long relationship and one child. Now, you, you go into exhaustive detail in terms of interviewing the numbers of friends that you connect with from his past, school, as you mentioned, Granada Television, I got much less of a sense of Jane and mm, their daughter, mm. Ruth. Did well, they say, we don't want anything to do with this? I, I think that comes back to what I was saying earlier. The emphasis was, was on what made him the writer he is, and that really goes back to when he was a child. And really, his, his wife and, and daughter come into the story, to that story, um, in the sense that he urgently needed to provide for them. I mean, a very traditional guy in that respect. He felt, and, and this, is a, this is one of the big, big differences from Reacher, he felt the burden of responsibility in a way that Reacher never has to, never does, never have. Um, and, and that, no doubt, is Lee or Jim playing out some of his fantasies. So the wife and daughter are critical to the story insofar as he needed to be a success as a writer so that he could provide for them once he'd lost his job. And he had a mortgage then and, you know, his daughter was still at school and everything. But other than that, I think he felt quite strongly that they were not part of his story, his journey as a writer. And and even they are together and they're a close, they're a, quite a tribal, close-knit family in a way. But, you know, maybe that also partly answers your question. So they're, they're sort of quite inward-looking as a family. And um, I think Lee likes it that way. They lead quite independent lives from each other as well, partly the luxury of wealth. I mean, if you've got multiple houses and you can choose where you can be, wherever you want to be, whenever you want to be, you can get there at any time by whatever means you choose, private jet or otherwise, then, you know, there's a lot of independence there and they're all doing their own thing. 
And I remember once when we were driving back from somewhere and I asked after Jane and Ruth and he said, oh, I've no idea. I've no idea what my family are doing. He literally said, I've no idea what my family are doing and I like it that way. You, I think, do a word count at one stage of the uses of the word alone and lonely, and you find that they crop up in all the books and that there is not one single book where that word does not appear. Exactly right, and sometimes it appears many times. And um, towards the end of his writing, his solo writing career, he kind of um, articulated that about Reacher as well. I mean, it actually comes up really early in, in I think it's the... Um, it's the th- third yeah the third reacher book it comes up reaches anxiety about loneliness um, because he's considering his relationship with a woman at that point uh, but right at the end lee actually said that um reacher is a guy who uh, likes doing his own thing but sometimes fears loneliness um particularly as he gets older but yeah i think that the thing that for me connects him with Camus, all those things you said and obviously there's a stylistic affinity because there's a certain leanness to his prose and and a, a lack of affect if you like which is very typical of Camus, a defining characteristic of Camus. But also there were those autobiographical things about them having both um, physical weaknesses. But I think for me, above all, it was a kind of searing honesty with himself. So, you know, he's, he's like, like Camus, he's always contemplating death. He's kind of looking it in the face. What is the meaning of it? And he's he's not shy of it. He's not shying away from it. Actually, I think, funnily enough, I think that's some of the things that he has to say and to write about death and how Reacher copes with it, uh, not so much the deaths he inflicts as the deaths that we suffer as individual human beings, of the bereavements we suffer, are, are one of the things that's brought readers so close to him because readers find comfort in his rather pragmatic approach, in his kind of accepting approach of death that... It's one of those things that's going to happen to us all, and uh, it's a question of when, not if. And he's 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 sort of very down to earth and not melodramatic about any of those things, but very honest. Well, and also very unsentimental. But I'm going to ask you something that occurred to me thinking about all of this this morning. I was flicking back through your book. You've just mentioned that lack of affect, which ties him to Camus. You also mentioned that particularly pedantic detail about correcting you on where the shelf was that mm-hmm. he, you know, fixed in the flat. You know, it seems to me he's a factoid. He loves information. He recoils from anything that is too emotionally overblown. Have you ever asked yourself whether this person with this formidable brain and memory and capacity for information and curiosity is on the spectrum? Uh I think it's an inevitable question. But as with so many of these things, because of that formidable brain, he anticipates you <laughs> because I've heard him describe himself. He, he says, no doubt, no doubt I am somewhere on the spectrum. Um, <laughs> and he doesn't particularly want to. He, he is definitely of that generation that does not like to introspect particularly. Um, you know, he's outward looking and he's focused on what he can see, touch, feel. He's very, he's an empiricist, you know. But yeah, he says that himself in the same way that it was, he was the one who said, I'm writing because I'm looking for love. I mean, you don't need to psychoanalyze Lee Child because whilst he's not inclined to that kind of um, self-absorbed introspection, he's also not going to let himself off the hook. <laughs> you know, he knows those things about himself. And, and, and again, you see it in Reacher. He often says about Reacher, one of the things people enjoy about Reacher is that he has plenty of quirks and foibles. Those are the words he always uses. Plenty of quirks and foibles, but he doesn't worry about them. He doesn't even, he doesn't even seem to be aware of them. So a step further than Lee, he's not aware of them. He certainly doesn't lose any sleep over them and I think again that's one of the things that people find appealing about the character Uh, we talk a lot about in our culture we talk a lot about the importance of moving on but in fact we're mostly quite bad at it and uh, Reacher of course is 
an expert, both in the literal sense that he moves on at the end of each story, catches his bus out of town, but also in that, you know, he he encounters evil as he sees it. He deals with it. He doesn't ask himself too many questions before dealing with it because he's got to get on with it and sort it out. You know, he's got to do the job and he's got to get it done. So he doesn't ask too many questions beforehand and he certainly doesn't waste any time worrying about it afterwards or having any regrets or there's never any self-recrimination. You know, you might argue that there should be, that there should be doubt, that there should be... But that's one of the things that he's freed Reacher of. We all suffer from those things. Reacher is free of that. And um, I think people find that rather liberating in a way. Uh. <laughs> then, Heather, that leads me to ask you, what do you think is the difference between Lee Child's moral code and Jack Reacher's moral code, because obviously in Reacherland, there is, as you say, casual violence and lawlessness. Now, obviously, that's not the way that Lee behaves in the world. And he does seem to be a very disciplined person. He he doesn't seem to be the sort of person who has unruly addictions. He hasn't let himself get into a lot of, you know, scuffles and fights. He's not someone who's thrown out of bars and nightclubs drunk. You know, even though he clearly enjoys his wealth, he even spends that in a sort of fairly conventional way. You know, they're expensive watches, there are flashy cars. But I mean, he's pretty orderly. He is orderly. He's very much in control. And his university friends stressed that he was always like that. But um, he, he is, of course, an addict. And he describes himself as an addict. But, you know, you're talking sort of um, marijuana there, basically. And cigarettes, nicotine. Um, so he is an addict, but he's an orderly <laughs> addict. An addict who remains forever in control. And uh, he doesn't drink, well, well, not to speak of. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I would say his moral code is exactly the same as Reacher's. That he, he feels the same way about Reacher on pretty much everything. So it stops short at the level of behaviour. But partly that is because he has in him that capacity for anger and that desire for revenge. I mean, that is really one of the motors of his writing, the desire for revenge against the people who gave him the sack after he gave them, as we say, the best years of his life. Except they weren't the best years because he had even better to come. (laughs) But, you know, so he, he has all those strong feelings, anger, revenge, resentment, that, again, we all have, I guess, and maybe to an extent he has them more than many of us because of the anger and resentment that he feels towards his own parents. Still, even now, as well, not just... not just uh, sort of Granada Television or the management of Granada Television, but he, and I think it's partly because he's, again, very conscious of that capacity in himself, and he was a fighter as a boy, he was a scuffler and a scrapper as a boy, that he keeps those things in check. Because if he gets into a fight, whether it's verbal or physical or legal, he has to win. Again, that's, he's told me that, he knows it about himself, I've seen it in action, I have seen it in action. Uh, I've seen the odd argument, um, verbal. And um, it's like, again, he he gives that to Reacher. Reacher, we don't think of Reacher as being immensely competitive because he's this loose, you know, fancy free guy who does what he wants when he wants, pretty much. But you often hear Reacher say, win or lose. There is no third option. And that is, is Lee. He has to win. He has to be number one. So he has to keep some of those impulses in check. And I think it's that intellect, that brain. And also, he's, he's got quite a... For someone so successful and for someone so ambitious and at some level arrogant as well, he's also got a remarkable lack of self-importance. I mean, he, you know, he's all those things, but he doesn't really... He, yeah, he's free of self-importance. He's not pompous. He's not pretentious. He was very interested in the problem of memory as well. That was the thing that that sort of sucked him in to doing it. He wanted to examine. And that's another Borgesian thing as well. Obviously, memories, memory and mirrors. Yes. 
another two things that link in with Vaudhurst. But um, yeah, uh, um, and actually the mirror thing, I, I, I've written a new chapter, in fact, for the paperback, which is coming out in October. And one of the images I focus on that is, um, I resist mentioning Vaudhurst there, but, <laughs> but I do... Um, use the image of the mirror because when I was in his uh, apartment in New York once I took a photograph on impulse and it's in the biography um, of him where he's reflected in a mirror and I, and I said to him this is after publication after we'd done interviews together and events and obviously we were having new conversations about the biography and how it was being received and what people were saying about it and uh, I said to him does that photograph in the mirror kind of um you know, is, is it a metaphor of the biography for you? And he, he said, yeah, you know, you're looking at me, but it, you know, I'm reflected in a mirror, but at one removed. So there's just, it's faithful to an extent, and there's a degree of distortion. <laughs> and, um, he, you know, he liked it just like that, really. He always said to me, and, and I realised then that sort of way back in like 2016, I think it was, not long after we'd met, he once said to me, I love the idea of having an author photograph where I'm seen through a window or in a frame, you know, where I'm not looked upon directly. He doesn't really enjoy all those, you know, there are all those glamorous photographs of him out there. Yes. Uh, Pin-up pin up sort of uh, matinee idol style photographs, the big blue eyes and whatever. Uh, he doesn't really enjoy that direct gaze of the camera, um, but he's had to sort of, he's had to kind of live that part. But why did you feel the necessity to write an extra chapter for the paperback? That's quite unusual. It is unusual. I, I think it was because we'd had interesting conversations. I mean, that little story about, you know, wishing you'd had his author photograph um, done through a, a mirror or through a frame or a window. That's the kind of thing he would just slip into conversation just really from early on. And conversation with him is always like that. There's always these little nuggets, you know. And so when we were doing interviews, uh, we, we had some great live events planned for the launch, but of course, COVID intervened. So we found ourselves doing quite a lot of virtual events. And people were asking him slightly different questions because of the biography. So I was hearing him respond in subtly different ways. And I was hearing him talk about the experience of being, and he used the word biographed. <laughs> and, 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 of course, he very cheekily started telling people little stories and anecdotes that had been brought to his mind that he hadn't told me. Or, you know, because obviously no one is going to remember everything or there's not, and even if they did, I had to leave a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor, you know. So there were just some lovely little details that illuminated the conversations we'd already had, and that also, I think, illuminated his decisions to retire and things like that. And I, I just wanted to. I proposed it to the publisher. They liked the idea. I proposed it to Lee. He liked the idea. I wrote it. He loved it. So it was just, again, another one of my impulses. <laughs> you mentioned before the importance of the word revenge in the sort of cosmology of Jack Reacher and, you know, it, it sort of underpins a lot of the motivation in Lee Child in terms of the way Jack Reacher um, sorts things out. I'm just wondering whether you think that in a way the biography is also the ultimate validation of a writer in a genre that has always been subject to enormous literary snobbery. So mm. until recently, there was very little attention paid in literary pages to crime writing and thriller writing. That's changed recently. But is there a sense that in a way, like being asked to be a judge of the Booker Prize, mm. for him must have felt like the ultimate establishment tick, the idea of being taken seriously enough to justify a biography must have made him feel, I, I have arrived. That is very perceptive of you. And indeed, the pleasure he takes in all these late accolades is precisely that. He's not that bothered about being a commander of the British Empire, but he loves that they gave it to him. You know, it's the same as, you know, he he's, wasn't that bothered about impressing his teachers at school, but he forced them to give him a scholarship because they didn't want to because he was a sort of a bit of a bad boy. So he's, he's basically anti-establishment by nature, you know, in character. So to, despite that, 
that to get the validation of the establishment, I think, for him does mean something. And he's, again, quite frank, disarmingly frank about that. He's not precious about it at all. So, yeah, he's literally ticking off the CBE. And I remember when I said to him, when I congrat, because he, he, he wrote to me about, he said something for the biography, I've just been awarded the CBE. I said, oh, great, not an OBE. He said, no, I would have refused that. But another thing that makes him unique in some ways in the business um, and that I think really you convey with a particular momentum and energy where the speed of the book really picks up, I feel, is in discussing how interested he is and how involved he is in the business. He thinks strategically about his own books. He's always in dialogue with his agent. You know, the sort of bidding war nature of which publisher is going to get the book. And then, of course, the massive furor over the film rights and the casting of Tom Cruise. He is in there absolutely boots and all, whereas so Mm. many writers go... I don't want to know. Not only do they not want to know, they don't really feel, well, they just don't feel comfortable with it most, I think. It's not their milieu. He could have gone in so many different directions. I mean, he, you know, okay, he ended up as a best-selling writer of thrillers. He obviously could have been a businessman. Yes. <laughs> you know, he could have done so many different things. He loves the business side of it. I mean, I think he's tired of it now, but he, he certainly loved that. He was fully involved. And he always says famously, it's one of the things that riles the literary or has riled the literary establishment, that he sees no contradiction between business and art. And, and I thought a lot about that and and I, I think I basically agree with him that with him there is no contradiction between business and art but it's an important caveat because most people can't keep can't balance those two things can't care as much as he does about the aesthetics which he really genuinely does he's he's a master craftsman and that matters to him that probably at a personal level matters to him more than anything that he should He's chosen to do this job and he must do it as well as he possibly can. So he really cares about it. But at the same time, he really cares about the business. He's really interested and he has got a very good nose for it, a very sound instinct, and he's super competitive. So all those things, he can keep all those uh, things going at once. And I think that's, you know, that's that kind of complexity to him, which I alluded to at the beginning, which makes him such a fascinating character, which made, um, I think, for me, made him interesting to write about. He has had the most amazing uh, opportunity for an exit strategy that very, very few people could pull off, which is to basically hand over the franchise to his brother. So relatively late in the piece, you tell us that Andrew, his younger brother, has been a thriller writer all along. And so there is this kind of inevitable thing, like a sort of royal succession that, you know, oh, well, we'll just give it to Andrew. Um, how has that worked? Because I don't know whether that is again in the additional chapter but you don't go into a lot of detail about how Andrew felt about possibly the burden of expectation. No, well, I think that's another story. And it's a story for another book by another writer, perhaps. That that all happened quite late on. I mean, yes, in a, obviously with hindsight, and you can tell the story however you want, and no doubt they do tell the story however they want. And certainly the publisher tells the story however they want. But that decision to hand over to Andrew, who was a thriller writer, who is a thriller writer in his own right, actually happened quite late um, after he decided, you know, he basically really wanted to retire. He felt he'd done his bit. But people didn't, and I saw this in the archive. I've seen the correspondence. People write him desperate letters, and desperate isn't an exaggeration, saying, please don't retire, please don't stop, please don't die, please don't kill off Jack Reacher. Now, I know it sounds ridiculous, and it is in a way, but those letters, they're by the box load. And so he he feels this obligation to keep going, Obviously, the publisher wants him to keep going, but he personally wants to stop. It's the old Birmingham mentality. I've done my, I've done my working life. I want to retire now with my gold watch. Okay, then Andrew presented himself as a possibility, but I was very glad to... I, I'm a purist. I'll be honest about that. I'm a purist. For me, um, Lee Child books are Lee Child books written by Lee Child. <laughs> and he created this character, Jack Reacher, who has escaped the books. He's escaped into film. He's escaped into a franchise. He's escaped into people's lives. People treat him like their big brother or their protector or their, their confidant or whatever. You know, he's bigger than the books. And that's a phenomenal achievement. But that's why I keep coming back to his voice, the words on the page. I guess that's the academic in me. I keep saying, well, I'm interested 
in this guy because he wrote those words in in those books. And also, I think there are there are contradictions there which are difficult to reconcile. Um, one of the things that he said many times, and I quote him many times as saying this in the book, is that a book has to be the product of a single mind, that the authenticity of the book depends on that. He's always saying that when he's giving advice to young writers or would-be writers. Uh, even to someone like me, he would say, don't let people influence you too much, don't t- don't take anyone else's advice. Uh, write the book that you want to write, the book that you have to write, the book that you feel is your book to write. So he would often say the book must be, and pronounce it in his rather sort of um, magisterial way, yeah, um, the book must be the product of a single mind. So for me, I'm thinking, mm, it's not the product of a single mind anymore. So for me, there's a line, and I'm happy. I'm happy that my, my biography was able to come to a natural I think quite aesthetically um, pleasing and intellectually pleasing end when it did. I think you say that he got the voice, the narrative reach of voice that is so distinctive and that his readers absolutely love so much from the voiceover of two films. Absolutely right. <laughs> Actually, it was um, the Kevin Costner film, wasn't it? Dancers with Wolves. Yes. Um, yeah, and he really, really kind of liked, and I went back, of course, I went back and watched it, uh, that laconic voice. Again, quite quite a sort of deadpan delivery, um, which he, he said inspired him. That was the voice he wanted for the character of, of Reacher. And you can certainly you can kind of see it at work when you go back to that that movie. And the other one was Days of Heaven, I think a less well-known movie, which had the female voiceover. It was a young girl. And again, uh, very, um, you know, quite dis- sounding, quite dispassionate, although there's a lot of feeling in there. Very oral. I mean, he wanted an oral voice, so the fact that it's two voiceovers, I think it's important. In fact, he would often say to me, I never really dreamed of being um, a number one writer. I wanted to be a number one storyteller. Uh, <laughs> and, and he always describes himself as a book writer, not an author, which I think is very important too. And so I think he wanted that oral quality. He wanted that sort of quite low-key style, which is present in both those voiceovers. So I think, yeah, they, they inspired him directly. Days of Heaven, of course, is the film by Terence Malick. Of course, yeah. Um, just continuing with the film theme, of course, I, I remember when I interviewed him at the Cheltenham Festival in front of an adoring crowd of 2000, that when it came to him talking about the just-announced casting of Tom Cruise as Jack Reacher, the audience became like one animal and they howled and they bayed like wolves. And he stood up to settle them down. He said, it is going to be all right. I promise it is going to be all right. And you say that was the only thing he's ever been completely wrong about. Yeah, it's the one of the few things he admits to being wrong about. And it was a difference, a fundamental difference in point of view and a rare failure of imagination and empathy on his part. Because I would say he's a very empathetic guy. And the quiet emotion that you get in those previous films we were mentioning is there in his books. It's just not laid on with a trial. It's there. It's resonant in his books. But, um, yeah, a little bit of a failure of imagination because he basically saw the movie, you know, Tom Cruise, A-list star. I mean, he's going to turn down Tom Cruise. And he really didn't have much opportunity. He had to say sort of yes or no. And, you know, probably most people, most of us would have said yes at that point. But he basically saw it as someone covering his hit song. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, a cover of his great a cover version of his book. So as a writer, he never, and also as someone who'd worked in TV before, um, for a long time, he never expected the film to reproduce his book in some kind of um, very precise way. It would be a version of, an interpretation of, someone else's take on it, someone else's someone else's Jack Reacher, and it was someone else's Jack Reacher. It became all too quickly Tom Cruise's Jack Reacher. And I think in the end, he found that quite distressing. 
So what I think saved him was that he had some kind of a right of veto after two movies, so it was easy enough for him to disentangle it at that point. But I'm sure it's one of the things that has pushed him towards retirement because some people say, well, couldn't you just go and write in these books? They don't take you that long. You're very good at it. You know, it's, it doesn't take that much out of you, perhaps. Uh, couldn't you just go on doing it forever till you know you can't hold a pen anymore or t- <laughs> whatever, till you go blind like Borders? But I think it's <laughs> partly that kind of, he was so hounded. <laughs> uh, and again, I talked about the fan mail saying, please don't let go of Jack Reacher. The hate mail in those boxes in the archive, extraordinary. Absolutely uh, personal attacks for what is just a, a kind of an almost accidental industry event. I mean, barely even a choice on his part. You know, it was an agreement. He said yes. It's not his choice or his decision or his... He kind of accepted, I think, rather graciously that, OK, this is the movie business. It's not my... I'm the book business. I have control over my books. They have control over their movies. He respects that. I think he was exhausted by the hate mail from that. And I found it rather sad, actually. And, you know, so he would say to me, I think that if my uh, PR team, my social media team were to put out a message saying, oh, Lee Charles fallen down the stairs and broken his leg, they'd just say, oh, ask him why he chose Tom Cruise. (laughs) I'm curious, Heather, about his attitude to editing. You say that he writes one draft, which I find absolutely astonishing. And it's almost like at that point, he sort of loses interest. But then when the manuscript goes for editing, he's very resistant to any suggested changes. And that does seem to suggest a kind of arrogance. And you did use the word Mm, arrogant mm, before. mm. So what's your take? I mean, I bet you wrote more than one draft of your book. I did, although, again, I adopted a certain methodology of his. Um, the, the one draft thing is a little misleading, as you might anticipate, insofar as he writes without a plan. That is true. Um, and he writes slowly, but he begins each day by revising or revisiting what he wrote the day before. So, of course, he is redrafting, but he does it as he goes along, which is a different kind of redrafting. It's not the same as revisiting the whole thing at the end, I admit. But it is important. And he does write very slowly. I mean, you hear about, um, you know, he might write a couple of thousand words a day, whereas you hear about writers doing a lot more than, or even just a couple of hundred some days. So he's trying very hard to get it right first time. He's listening to that voice in his head. And but he's, he's not to listening right to anybody time. else's voice. No, no, he's not. No, he's not. And, um, of course, it was very different with the first one. The first one went through many, many drafts, I mean, obviously, and he listened very, very carefully to his first editor, David Heifel at um, G.P. Putnam Sons, who, as far as his current publisher, because that, that period doesn't even exist. I mean, you know, if you look at, if you look at his books out there in the world, they're, they're published by Penguin Random House. It's quite hard to find that, in fact, he had a different publisher for the first six books in the, in the US, and that was the editor who really did have a, a big impact on his development as a writer and with whom he worked closely. But even then, I think after a few books, he thought, I can do this. You could say he loses interest, and to an extent, I think that would be true. He gets bored. I've told that story now. I don't want to go back and revisit that story. It's like, you know, I don't want to tell the story of my life. I've lived that. I want to tell the next story. I want to read the next book. He's restless. He's always looking forwards. He's not a retrospective kind of looking back sort of guy, just like Reacher. You never see Reacher mulling over his old cases, you know, in his books. But, and I know this is a rationalisation, but it's so true to his character that I kind of roll along with it, which is that he says, and he admits there's a certain lunacy in this, he says that basically once he's written it, that's how it was. That's how it happened. That's, That's the truth of Reacher's life. So it becomes fact. Once it's committed to the page, it's not fiction anymore. It's fact. That's actually how it happened. And so his favourite anecdote is, you know, my editor will say, wouldn't it be better if this came before that? And he said, yeah, but it didn't, so it can't. Because that would (laughs) falsify. And he's very preoccupied by that. And I think there's, this is genuine. I think he feels that if people over-edit their work or rework it too much... You, you lose the freshness, the spontaneity, perhaps the raw quality that you have in the Terence Mallet film and in Dances with Walls. There's a certain rawness to those voices, isn't there? They're not polished. 
although he does polish, he's polishing discreetly as he goes along. And then he doesn't want to tamper. He's again got this big thing about not over tampering, because if you tamper, it'll feel tampered. It'll start to feel artificial. It won't just feel like he was telling you a story. I wanted to ask you about the fact that you labelled this genre of his mythic realism. Is that a term that you coined yourself because I'm not familiar with it? Or does that actually exist as a, a literary category? I did not coin it, but I don't think it's a, it's not a widely used category. I've certainly come across it in academic circles. And I think, again, it goes back a little bit to my background in, um, you might say, especially Latin American literature. You know, I've read my Garcia Marquez or whatever. Um, it's not magic realism, but it's mythic realism. And I think the point, really, that that sums up quite well, it's quite a useful category, I think, is that... Uh, Clearly, Reacher is a larger-than-life character. Uh, not only does he do all sorts of things that we can't really do in real life um, and more successfully than we could ever dream of doing them, um, you know, he's, he's kind of just short of superpower, a superhero, isn't he? I mean, he's got sort of virtual superpowers, not just um, physical, but mental as well. You know, he's, he is really sharp and he remembers everything and he can tell the time without looking at a watch and <laughs> he always <laughs> catches people out because of, you know, their punctuation or some little word they used out of place or something. He's really sharp mentally. He's, he's Sherlock Holmes and he's um, Superman, if you like, or, or, or um, Hercules or Robin Hood or whoever. So he's, he's a mythic character, but he's operating in a largely realist environment. And I think that's quite important to Lee because he does feel that the crime, that in general crime novelists are the social realists of our day. They're, they're documenting the world that we live in. So Reacher's operating in a broadly contemporary world, admittedly more 20th century than 21st. You mention one of his FBI contacts. Oh, okay. Now, does he have a network of people in the police, in the CIA, in the FBI that help him with information about scenarios? Can you elaborate a bit on that? Because you don't. I can. I can. I, I, I perhaps am guilty of leaving out some of the things that I know are, are a bit more in the public domain. I was keen to bring in things that no one had ever written about before. But um, he does have that network. Um, he doesn't use it much, but he has that network. But he only has it, and this is, I think, the fascinating thing, because they were all readers of his books. <laughs> so they're Jack Reacher readers. They're fans. They write to him. You know, people, uh, soldiers in the army wrote to him from Afghanistan. Members of the military write to him all the time. I think they feel that he's someone they can talk to. You know how you can... I don't know, talk to someone serving you, uh, the barista or something, serving you coffee in a, in a bar, you know, no strings attached. It's that kind of thing. They can write to, to Lee Child. They don't know him, but they feel they can confide in him, so they talk to him. And people from the FBI have written to him, and people from the police have written to him, and people from government have written to him. Bill Clinton wrote to him, you know? <laughs> so these people write to him, and obviously sometimes he answers. And also he files it away. Oh, that guy from the FBI? That could come in handy. And every now and then he has... He does refer back to, to, to people, particularly on things like that, uh, for veracity, I suppose, uh, firearms experts and things. Because, you know, he's um, picked up a gun, but he's never fired a gun, I don't think. Um, he's not a gun guy, uh, and neither is Reacher, really. So he relies... Um, he does have a network, but, you know, you've got to remember that this is a guy who's a voracious reader and has been reading forever. So he relies first and foremost on his reading. He'll always go to his books first, to his memory, to the library in his mind, to the library on his shelves. He'll go to Google. He'll go to the internet. But there are people out there he can consult, he can consult if he needs to. And every now and then, as I got to know him better, if he was feeling lazy and he'd forgotten something about a reacher's past, he would just text me and say, oh, did Re when, did reacher when did reacher's father die? <laughs> He texted me once. <laughs> you know, oh, and Exa, was Reacher at his father's funeral? I mean, that was a question he asked me once. <laughs> so I became part of the network. He, he could rely on me to know certain things about certain topics and he could just check in. I think, Heather, that that, 
that actually means to me that you'd become more than part of the network. In a sense, you've become part of the family. I've become part of the memory, I would say, part of the repository, if you like, of, of reach and knowledge, yes. It's great to see a genre writer given the serious treatment of a literary biography. Lee Child presents a fascinating psychological challenge in that he's a made-up identity, just like his character, Jack Reacher. The two are almost indistinguishable, although Lee Child has acquired great wealth and fame, and Jack Reacher is an anonymous troubleshooter. Heather Martin leaves no stone unturned in identifying where the Grant Child life becomes the Reacher story. Sometimes she may go a bit further than the reader needs in talking to so many of his school and work friends and colleagues. Critics have called the book exhaustive and exhausting, but that may be snobbery. They wouldn't say that if the book were about a more highbrow figure. I think she makes a very convincing case for his writing to be taken seriously rather than dismissed as airport fiction. The extract you heard at the top of the show is from The Killing Floor, read by Jeff Harding and published by Penguin Audio. My thanks to Lee Child for securing permission to use that clip. Oh, and fun fact, the Reacher franchise in the UK includes his very own coffee brand. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Darrowell country and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Music is written and performed by Amanda Brown from her album Slow Chocolate, published and licensed by Lily Pilly IP. Listener.